I'll read my text to you later. Uh, the title of my message this morning is Demonstration of the Spirit's Power. Demonstration of the Spirit's Power, and it's actually an exact quote from where our text is going to come in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. But let's begin with this. I would like you to imagine this morning a little girl who's the age of four, and her mother dies. Her 24-year-old mother dies. The father, who is 13 years older than the mother, from another country, abandons the little girl. And so the little girl is raised by a grandmother. But the grandmother dies eight years later when the little girl is 12. So the little girl is put on a train and sent to California where she's raised by an aunt, where she lives until she marries a soldier during World War II. Now at the age of 78, fast forward 60 years of marriage, fast forward 60 years of marriage, now she's 78 years old, her husband has passed away, and she discovers she has an obscure brother just two years older who has been searching for her for a lifetime. He is 80. He was sent to Omaha Boys Ranch at the age of six when their mother died. Now, the elderly lady didn't remember him at all. He wants to meet her. What will her first words be? She flies to see Joe and discovers he is dying of cancer. So not only will this be her first words, this will be her last words, for it's near the end. This will be their first and their last encounter. Those were the questions swirling in my mother's mind as she flew to Dallas, Texas from Wichita, Kansas. First words and last words. They are important. The Bible has a message for you this morning as a follower of Jesus Christ from its first words and its last words. Let's begin in Genesis chapter 1, God's first words. And it says this, now the earth, after it says God created the heavens and the earth, in verse 1 it says, now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering or fluttering. That comes from a Hebrew word that talks about the wings of a bird creating wind or breath. The Spirit of God was fluttering or hovering over the waters. Now let's go to the end of the Bible, to the very last chapter. John's vision of the end time events is concluding there. A pure river of life is flowing out of the throne room. Jesus is, is testifying that he's coming quickly and announcing that to the churches. And this is what it says in Revelation twenty-two sixteen. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. The Spirit and the bride say, come. First words and last words. It is not coincidence that the Spirit of God was present and active as the Bible begins and as it ends. Now imagine this. A baby boy is born in Bethlehem, Bethlehem to a virgin conceived by the Holy Spirit. And according to the angel of the Lord, he is to be called Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. This boy is reared in a country village where my wife and I have been, a hilly little sleepy town called Nazareth. 
where we hear absolutely nothing about Jesus for 30 years, except one time when he's 12. And then at age 30, it's as if time itself becomes pregnant. It's as if all of history converges on this point in time when Jesus comes out of hiding and initiates his public ministry. And I know you remember the story, most of you, this man of God, this God who splits human history, his story is so well documented and often repeated in the plane of human events. What were his first words and his last words in public ministry? Whatever they were, they've got to be important and we should know them. So from the wilderness testing after he's baptized by the Holy Spirit and he directly confronts Satan, these are the very first words that Jesus spoke. He left the desert and the wilderness. He goes to Capernaum, as I recall the city was. He goes into the synagogue. He asks for the scroll from Isaiah 61, and he stands up, and these are his first words in public ministry. Luke 4.18, quoting Isaiah, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim freedom to prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. Two takeaways. The Spirit of God is the engine or the power driving his ministry, and the Holy Spirit was with him through those 30 years, was in him, but now at this point, the Holy Spirit, who's plundering darkness in the devil's territory, is about to come upon him. Now, Peter, it's interesting, Peter, all the way back in his epistle at the end of the New Testament, looks back, and it's, it's like if you were in a class and you were given a challenge to, in one sentence, describe Jesus' entire public ministry. How would you like that for an assignment? In one sentence, describe his public ministry. And he does that in Acts 10.38, where he said, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit, and power, how he went about around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil. Now, if those were his first words, and Peter describes it as the Holy Spirit anointing him to go out and do ministry, what were his last words? What were the very last words of Jesus' public ministry before he ascended to be seated at the right hand of the Father? We have to go to the book of Acts to get this now. Acts chapter 1, 4, Acts chapter 1, on one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift of my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, that would be a, re a baptism of repentance, John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, what does it say in verse 8? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You cannot walk away from this revelation without a profound sense of awe and wonder. Jesus' first words and last words as he initiated his public ministry were about the power of the Holy Spirit on his life. The first words and the last words of the Bible in their entirety begins with the activity and work of the Holy Spirit and then ends with the same. 
We've been on a journey for the last several weeks learning about the importance of praising God and how that welcomes and ushers in the presence of God. And when God's presence is among us, corporately or individually, it results in demonstrations of the Spirit's power. Now, it occurred to me while I was praying and studying that uh, someone is probably asking themselves right now, why all this emphasis on the importance of surrendered, extravagant praise to God? I thought evangelism, outreach, making disciples was the missional center of the church and of Christian life. That's a good question, don't you think? It's a fair question. It ought to be asked. And I'm going to give you this illustration. When you build a house, as much fun as that it could be, you don't get to start with adding all the gingerbread. You don't get to put the columns out on the front porch. You don't get to put dormers on the roof. You don't get to hang shutters on either side of the window. You don't get to paint the exterior. You don't get to landscape the yard. And most of all, you don't get to move in. When you build a house, you begin with paperwork, permits and contracts. And you begin with dirty work, like digging foundations. And all of that has to happen. When you build a church... You can't shortcut the architect's plan. Rather, you begin with the paperwork and the dirty work. When you look at the book of Mark and you look at Jesus' ministry, I was reading it for the first time today through the lenses of what I've just said to you. Why, why is Pastor Jeff talking about praising the Lord, ushering the presence of God, which brings the power of God, the demonstrations of the Spirit's power? And I was reading Mark, Mark 1 with new lenses, and here's, here's what happens in Mark chapter 1. The first thing that happens is Jesus, in public ministry now, he casts out an unclean spirit. He casts out an unclean spirit. And it says this in verse 28. His fame spread throughout the region. His fame spread throughout the region. And then immediately after he did that, he, he healed Peter's mother-in-law of a fever. And this is what it says that evening. That evening after he healed Peter's mother-in-law of a fever, it says the whole city was gathered at the door of the house. The whole city was gathered at the door of the house. And then the third thing he does is a leper comes along and he says, Lord, if you're willing, I can be clean. And he says, I'm willing. And so he heals the leper of his disease. And guess what it said? Jesus says to him, by this time, Jesus is overwhelmed with people. You see, there's not a problem when there's demonstration of the Spirit's power. People show up. If you think the church is about evangelism and discipleship, then I'll tell you, if you want to get people there, like iron filings drawn to a magnet, they will come where the Spirit's demonstration and power is. So he cleanses this leper, and he says, now please don't tell anyone. Just go to back to the synagogue, talk to your priest, and do what Moses commands you to do. But of course, you know what he does. He goes out, and he tells everyone. And Mark 1 concludes by saying Jesus can't go into town and minister anymore. There, it, it's, it's, he can't. He's overcome. So he goes out to the desert, to the deserted places, and that's where he ministers. And people come to him. People come to him. So to answer your question about evangelism, why am I talking about the importance of God's presence 
and his power triggered by praise. It's, now, we've shared with you testimonies over the past few weeks of people basking in the presence of God who were instantly healed or delivered from a habit or experienced new freedom in Christ or received revelation knowledge. Uh, Tan, I'm going to mention your testimony again. Uh, Paul and you both had outstanding testimonies last week, but for some reason yours has just continued to linger in my mind. Here's somebody that's been in church, loved God and gone to church, you know, all these years, and then one morning singing, you're a good, good father. One morning singing, you're a good, good father. And the Holy Spirit, like an arrow out of the quiver of the Lord, deposits in her revelation, insight, and knowledge about how much God loves her unconditionally and, and loves her just as she is. Her picture's on God's refrigerator door. He loves her. And that love just overwhelmed her. An ocean of love poured over her. And she's lived in that, that knowledge since then. And it's a wonderful thing. You know, I have seen people praising God transform a war zone home when husbands and wives are having a problem and they can't get along together. I've seen just the counsel to begin praising the Lord in the face of difficulties and disharmony. Just begin to praise the Lord. Welcome the presence of God. I've, I've seen it change a home that's literally a war zone into a place of peace. It happens. I've seen parents not getting along with children and you counsel them, just begin praising the Lord. Just begin worshiping God out loud, audibly with your voice. And you will welcome the presence of God in a situation like that. And then God will reveal and display his power. And all of a sudden, see, as air is the atmosphere of earth, we were singing this morning about Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Come flood this. As air is the atmosphere of earth, praise and worship is the atmosphere of heaven and the kingdom of God. It's just the atmosphere of the, the kingdom of God. In practical terms, trying to address this whole thing in denim, I've discovered that those who are baptized with the Holy Spirit are the ones that most easily and willingly and even anxiously can't wait to praise God. Just can't wait to praise God. Now, there's a little bit of a cart and a horse thing right here. So, do you praise God first and then He fills you with the Spirit and, and it all takes off? Or do you get filled with the Spirit first and then, you know, you start praising Him because you're baptized with the Holy Spirit? And, and it really doesn't matter. As long as the cart and the horse are hitched together, that's what matters. you got to get somewhere and the cart and the horse have to be hitched together. And I'm talking about the kind of praise, the audible praise, when you release that river, that flow, uh, John 7, 37 and 38, if any one of you thirsts, let him come unto me. Out of his belly, out of his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. And this spake he of the Spirit. That's what the Bible, I'm quoting to you, the Scriptures. And this, the, the, that's out of the old King James. But listen, I don't want you to be misled here. Everybody hear, up, hear me now. I don't want you to be misled. God is not deaf. Some of you are sitting there and you're thinking, well, God's not deaf. I don't have to do it out loud. I can do it quietly on inside. It's true you can, but I can tell you that from God's perspective, it's not about loudness. It's about surrender. It's about emptying self. It's about brokenness. It's about coming to the end of yourself and quit trying to do it by yourself and just yielding to the presence and the Spirit of God. And when you do that, 
There's something that God does. Now, James talks about something similar to this in James chapter 3, 3 to 6, because, you see, the tongue, James says, it's a little men- member, but uh, let's see, we got it here. James 3, 3 to 6. When you put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or to take ships as an example, although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. So can you imagine what happens if the Holy Spirit tames your tongue? What happens when the Holy Spirit, instead of talking about self or attacking others in gossip or slander, what if the Holy Spirit takes your tongue and your voice and begins to use it to glorify and magnify and to exalt and to bless the name of our living God in audible worship? And what happens is somebody, no, that's wrong, someone begins to reign and rule The king's domain changes in your life because of your tongue and your voice. I can't tell you why God chose the tongue to be the part that we yield to him to get to this place, but he did choose the tongue, and that's why I'm encouraging you uh, so much. Friend, as long as you keep trying to live the Christian life in your own strength and power, life will keep outgunning you. It will just keep outgunning you. Zechariah 4, 6 says, this is the word of the Lord. It's not by might, it's not by power, but it's by my spirit, says the Lord. Jesus' ministry was by the spirit. Some of us think that Jesus had an edge on us as humanity because he came as God's son. He came in his divinity. That's not true. If you study Christology or study the life of Jesus or Paul's letters, you know that Jesus disrobed. He took off his divinity and he robed himself in flesh and humanity and he walked just as you and I walk. And the way he achieved a sinless life was by the power of the Spirit that was leading him. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon, the great British pulpiteer, said in the 19th century. He's known by many as the Prince of Preachers. He said, without the Spirit of God, we can do nothing. We are as ships without wind. We are branches without sap. We are coals without fire. We are useless. Samuel Chadwick, the Spirit-filled Methodist preacher, said this, the Christian religion is hopeless without the Holy Spirit. The church has the theology but not the power. And I would like to say to you, theology without experience It's like faith without works. It's dead. Theology without experience is like faith without works, and it's dead. Last week, our text was from 1 Corinthians 4.20, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. Launching a great church, which transforms a city, is not a matter of talk, but of demonstrations of the Spirit's power. If the church is missing anything today, it's missing the power and the authority of God. We do not need better technology. We don't need larger buildings or better organization 
or more perfect strategic planning. We need the authority and power of the kingdom, and the source of that authority and power is the Holy Spirit. It is the demonstrations of the Spirit's power that we need today so that our faith will not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The supernatural nature of the church demands a leadership that rises above the human. You know, we're looking for a new pastor here, and this is something that all of us in the board particularly needs to be praying about. And I hope you are praying about that woman or that man whom God has called to lead our church into the future. The supernatural nature of the church demands a leadership that rises above the human. The church has always prospered most when it has been blessed by strong spiritual leaders who expect and who experience the supernatural. Spiritual leaders are not made by human appointment or election. They are made by God. Only God can make them through the work of the Holy Spirit. Position can be conferred by bishops or boards, but not spiritual authority and power. That is conferred by the Holy Spirit. So just imagine with me, if you will, how CC or any church, CC, that's Celebration Center to me. Imagine how Celebration Center or any church, for that matter, would grow, would bust at the seams if word got out in the community that the power of God, that demonstrations of the Spirit's power were present in that place. Just imagine that for a minute. I saw something similar happen. And I can promise you, there would be traffic jams like you couldn't believe. No seats would be available. They'd be changing from one service to two services to three services. I said, maybe you saw it if you're old enough. Back in the 1960s and the 1970s, it started in the late 60s, and it happened actually on the West Coast. As the Spirit of God began to sweep across churches, and then not only across the West Coast, but it moved across to the mid, uh, the central plains, and then it went to the East Coast, and then it spread to other continents, and it went worldwide, and it was simply called the Jesus People Movement, the Jesus People Movement. The Holy Spirit was transforming lives. He was turning young people inside out and upside down overnight. I can remember them singing, we are one in the Spirit, we are one in the Lord, They'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. They'll know we are Christians by our love. I, can, I was in Wichita, Kansas at the peak of the movement, and I was on the street of Woodlawn headed, headed uh, north, and I drove by a church that wasn't Pentecostal and wasn't evangelical. And I can tell you that every window in that church was down, every door was open, every seat was full, and people were sitting outside. That's why the doors were open and the windows were open, because nobody could get inside. There was standing room only. The fire marshal was having a problem with how many people were coming. And people were literally sitting outside on the lawn listening to the service through the windows. Parking lots couldn't contain it. I've seen it happen in Michigan. I, I've seen it happen places. I, there's a place in Ohio right now where I can tell you unsaved strangers driving by a church in Dresden, Ohio, hit their brakes, stopped, and walked in the church to find out 
why was I arrested and felt like I had to come in this place? And that church had been in prayer and seeking the face of God and praising God and believing for His presence and His power. This thing happens. You know, one of the greatest miracles, we always talk about healing the sick or raising the dead or blind eyes open or deaf ears and stuff. Do you know that one of the most marvelous miracles in the kingdom of God is when He pours out His love and transforms people? There isn't anything like it. The love of God. The love of God changes people just in a moment of time. Well, let's read our text now, shall we? 1 Corinthians 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I'll bet we have it up here. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 1 to 5. Now, Paul is coming to the church at Corinth. It's A.D. 50. A.D. 50. That's only 17 years after Jesus. About the age of 33, Jesus ascended to the throne of And it's A.D. 50, and Paul the Apostle, for a year and a half, had been in the city of Corinth. He left there, and and six years later, he wrote his letter back to them from probably Ephesus. And the letter that he wrote, it has been said there's no clearer representation on the inside of a New Testament church than this letter to 1 Corinthians. Because Paul's letter to the uh, Corinthian believers is all about problems. In fact, 10 specific problems, immorality, incest, uh, uh, division, um, spiritual gift problems. I mean, it's all about the problem. The church still has problems today, but the answers are still the same. And here is what Paul says. We always think about Paul, this courageous, bold missionary, this apostle that's going all over the place. And this is what Paul writes them. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom. As I proclaim to you the testimony about God, I came to you in weakness and in great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Boy, that stirs me deeply. How we need that in our churches today. Not eloquence, not persuasive words, not human wisdom, but the demonstration of the Spirit's power. Jesus said, I will build my church in Matthew 16. He said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The gates of Hades will not overcome it. And we always stop quoting there, but it goes on and it says, And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. The keys are keys of authority to bind and to loose. Jesus came for the keys. That's why he came. He came for the keys that Adam lost. Adam and Eve lost it in the garden, the creation mandate back in Genesis 1. God gave them all authority to multiply, to increase, and to cover the earth. And and he said, rule everything. He said, rule everything. But they lost it. And you can go to the book of Luke where Jesus is being tested in the wilderness. And when Satan offers him all the kingdoms of the world, he says, I've been given authority to give this to you. Satan had the authority to give it to him, but Jesus was confronting him in battle. And when that testing was over in the wilderness, Jesus came back. He sent out his disciples in Acts chapter uh, 10 and ver- or Matthew chapter 10 and verse 1, and he says, he says, I'm giving you authority. And what was the Great Commission? You're familiar with the Great Commission? Matthew 28, 
those final words in the book of Matthew, they begin all authority, Matthew 28, 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus came for the keys. That's what he came for. Um, I'm going to just do a little show and tell real quickly here. Don, we're going to save, Donald, we'll save that video till next week. I have a great video that I want to show you. But um, my son's in real estate, and um, I've bought and sold several pieces of property through the years, houses, commercial buildings. And you get to the point where you're just so anxious, you're ready for it to happen, this transfer, this guaranteed title, this, this deed to the property. And uh, the title company goes through it, and they have to check and make sure that the title to the property is clear of all encumbrances, no liens, no, no mortgages against it, nothing at all. And what you're looking for is that seal, that, that seal on the title that guarantees you have it. There's a transfer of authority. There's a transfer of authority. And when you transfer authority from the title company and you get the deed, what else do they give you? They give you the keys. They give you the keys. Paul calls this title of authority, this transfer, he calls it the seal of the Spirit in Ephesians 1, 13. And I have a document that's just so old I had to show it to you. I, I wanted to find something with a seal on it. This is dated 1891. It, it is the, <laughs> I, I didn't hear that, but it must have been good. <laughs> this is dated 1891. It's actually a transfer from the United States Land Office, which held the Osage Native American Trust Lands and conferred them for the first time to a private owner. Now, I'm not proud of the way we treated Native Americans at all, but I want you to see this. It is signed by President Benjamin Harrison. It is signed by President Harrison, and down here in the corner is the seal. And that seal was the title deed to transfer it. And that's what the Holy Spirit has done for you and for me in this day and this hour. By giving us the power of the Spirit to conduct ministry in the church. You are called to host His presence. You are called to change the world around you at home, in the neighborhood, on the job where you're retired. You are called. It doesn't require an apostle, a prophet, evangelist, pastor, or teacher. It doesn't, it doesn't require a deacon or a bishop. You, the people of the church, believers, followers of Jesus Christ, are called through the presence of God and the power of the Spirit to transform the world around you by demonstration of the Spirit's power. And He will do that in Jesus' name. Let's stand together, shall we? If you're here this morning and you've been coming or this is your first time and you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, um, I want to encourage you to go on this journey of loving the Lord with all of your heart. Maybe you're watching this online um, there is nothing in all of life, there is nothing in all of life more wonderful than coming to the foot of the cross and repenting of your sin and accepting Jesus Christ as your Savior.
It's transforming. It's wonderful. It's exciting. And we hope that uh, if you have never made that decision, if you don't have assurance in your heart, if you died today and you aren't sure whether you would go to heaven or to hell, then I pray that you will pray this prayer of commitment with us as we close the service. And those of you that are here that are Christians, we encourage you by the power of the Holy Spirit to have enough faith and courage to begin sharing the love of God with people around you. Invite them to church. We would love to have them. Father, thank you for this time together in your presence. Thank you for the cross and the spilt blood of Jesus. Thank you for the sacrifice of your suffering and death. Thank you that you promised us that if we would believe on you in our heart and confess with you with our mouth and repent of our sin, that you would save us for all eternity, that you would write our name down in the Lamb's book of life. And Lord, we're thankful that our names are there. And Lord, we want to take as many people with us to heaven when we go. We love you, Lord, with all of our heart. Bless these dear ones today. Love on them. Show them your favor and your grace. Chase after us, as we heard earlier in the service. Hunt us down. You are the hound of heaven, Lord, and we run after you with all of our heart. Come, Holy Spirit, come into our lives. Come into our workplaces. Come into our home. Come into our neighborhood. Come into our city and transform it by the power of the kingdom of God. For the kingdom of God is not in talk, but in power. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. You are dismissed. God bless you. Go with God.